You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The plan today was to talk about the trial and execution of Louis Guitar and the Pirates of La Paz. We were then going to shift into the effect that these events had on the lead-up to the War of Spanish Succession. There are two main problems with that plan. First, we've already talked about the origins of the war. I thought that there might be some interesting angles we could explore that might contextualize what happened there, but there weren't. Second, though, the trial itself really isn't that interesting. You know, tensions were crazy high between England and France. War was brewing. And then along comes this French pirate who terrorized the coast of Virginia. You know, that's where we get our tobacco. There weren't really any interesting twists and turns to this trial. There was no homegrown support for Louis Guitar. This French pirate was pretty much railroaded through the Admiralty and swiftly killed. And I, I really shouldn't say he was railroaded. That sort of implies that the trial was biased. And I mean, it was, but he did it. It would be like catching a killer at the scene of the crime, standing over the dead body with a knife in his hand covered in the victim's blood. It's not going to be a complicated trial. 
So the effect on the upcoming war was pretty much non-existent. Louis Guitar was a French pirate. The French were the enemy, or soon would be. It was touted in the press as yet another French atrocity in the march to war, but it's like throwing another log on the bonfire. You know, sure, maybe it has an effect, but it doesn't really change anything. The bonfire is still raging, and the war is still going to happen regardless. There was more of an effect in Virginia, and Carolina and Maryland as well. They already held the French in no high regard, but it did convince these provinces that it was a good idea to further militarize their colony, you know, set up larger militias, better rallying points, that kind of thing, which they did and would serve them well in the upcoming war. So we're not going to talk about that. Instead, we're going to return to the year 1696. There are a number of smaller things that I've been meaning to talk about, trying to fit in here or there, but I've never found a good opportunity to do so. These have less to do with the pirates themselves and more with the legal environment in the English Empire in the lead-up to our next great era of piracy. This is episode 325, A House Infested with Wasps. Back in episode 318, the Companions of His Dangers. We began by tying up a lot of loose ends concerning the pirates of Madagascar. We talked about Robert Culliford, Adam Baldridge, and the last gasp of those pirates who defined what was later called Libertalia. What we didn't talk about, and what we really haven't talked about yet, is what happened to that conspiracy that was built to circumvent the monopoly in slave trading held by the Royal Africa Company. If you don't remember what I'm talking about, here's a quick recap. There is a theory, and it's one to which I mostly subscribe, that the pirates of the round, you know, men like Thomas II, Henry Avery, all those guys, the theory is that the entire era of what they call these roundsmen could be tracked back to a conspiracy hatched in New York City. That conspiracy involved the governor of New York, Benjamin Fletcher, the super-rich merchant Frederick Phillips, and another less-rich merchant named Adam Baldrige. Those three, along with a few other men, used a cohort of privateers, smugglers, and pirates to acquire enslaved African people and transport them to New York. This was illegal, of course. It was what they called interloping because they were sold outside of the monopoly of the Royal Africa Company. Now, in this conspiracy, there were also some pretty close business ties to Carolina and New Providence Island. These ties can suggest that certain elements from those colonies were in on the plot from the beginning, but those theories are hard to pin down to prove. Now, the enslaved people here were acquired through a number of pretty different means. Often, they were stolen from the French slave traders over on Reunion Island. But more often than that, they were just bought from the French through funds that had been earned through piracy. Very occasionally, it was the pirates themselves that did this trading. But more often than that, it was the smugglers from New York who handled that end of the operation. You know, those pirate merchants we talked about. As time went on, though, nearing the end of Adam Baldridge's tenure on St. Mary's Island... Mostly they were trading with the local Malagasy people for enslaved Africans. 
The Malagasy would capture people through raiding and warfare and sell them to Baldridge. What all of the pirates and smugglers and Adam Baldridge, what they weren't doing, though, was kidnapping people themselves. That end of the business was incredibly dangerous and incredibly difficult work. I think there's this image that some of us may still have rattling around inside of our heads that probably comes mostly from super racist old cartoons, but this image of like a, you know, a guy in a safari uniform hanging up a banana in a tree and then some African tribal native comes along and he gets caught up in a snare and that's how it went down, but that's not how it went down. Most enslaved people were captured through pretty brutal warfare and most of that warfare was conducted by other African kingdoms. That's not to say that Europeans never engaged in actually capturing people themselves, but it was expensive and less efficient than letting the people who knew the land do it for you. Mostly, what the Europeans in Africa did was provide the logistical support for the slave trade. Mainly by that I mean building giant forts, they called them factories, but really they were castles in which they could house all of these captured, imprisoned, and enslaved people. Then the Royal Africa Company, or their other European equivalents, would ship them off to the colonies where they would be sold and put to work. These fortresses required a huge amount of armed security to defend against breakouts or raids. I mean, it was men guarding a castle. It was expensive. And that's why England gave a monopoly to a private firm, the Royal Africa Company. You know, the funds tied up in the RAC weren't coming from the national budget, they were provided by individual shareholders. But those shareholders just so happened to be the most powerful men in England. Samuel Pepys, John Locke, the Earl of Shaftesbury, the Duke of Buckingham, Edmund Andros, we've talked about most of the board of the RAC. And of course, there were the two most powerful men, the two largest stakeholders in the Royal Africa Company. The second largest was King Charles II. The largest stakeholder was his brother, Duke of York, and the future King James II. So technically, yes, it was private, in that it was not funded from the royal coffers, but it was funded from the royal purse. And up until about 1688, the Royal Africa Company did a very good job protecting their monopoly. But then came the Glorious Revolution. King James was out, King William was in. And King William had absolutely zero love for the Royal Africa Company. Remember the, uh, what we called the Cabal Ministry of Charles II? Lords Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, Ashley, and Lauderdale. We talked about this a long time ago, but they were, during Charles's reign, the five most powerful men in England, excepting, of course, the king and his brother. Well, all five of those men were on the board of the Royal Africa Company. These were the men who led the restoration. They opposed the Glorious Revolution, and they were the RAC. The revolution imperiled their position, it imperiled their families' standing and their company's profits. They did try to solicit some royal goodwill from the new king by giving William all of the shares that had been held by James. That made 
King William, the majority stakeholder in the RAC, and it didn't not work. King William was happy to accept, but it didn't work maybe quite as well as they had hoped. William allowed them to continue on, but he wasn't going to invest any of his own capital. He especially wasn't going to invest any of the capital of the kingdom in aiding the Royal Africa Company. And that brings us back to 1696 and the Pirates of the Round. King William, and to a lesser extent the Parliament, didn't really care that the Roundsmen were circumventing the RAC's monopoly on slave trading. This conspiracy, which they didn't really know about yet, but they knew that, you know, slaves were being traded illegally, but it provided cheap enslaved labor to the colonies. It cost England nothing, and it made the colonies more productive than they formerly had been. It did this for less money and more efficiently than the RAC was currently doing business. This conspiracy was working out well for England. If we take the piracy out of the equation, it was just the free market at work here. But of course, you can't take the piracy out of the equation, and that's what the Crown had a problem with. It was upsetting the Mughal Empire, the East India Company, and the French in the region. And then, with all of this building up on his plate, across the desk of the king slides a piece of paper. It was written by a man who was by no means a friend of King William. He had been a deep supporter of the Stuarts, and while he may not have openly been a Jacobite, he certainly had sympathies in that direction. But he was England's agent on the ground in America, and had been at this point for almost 20 years. And he's really the one I want to get to today. His name was Edward Randolph. Now, I could tell you all about who Edward Randolph is, or I could let the man himself do so. See, that piece of paper is what I really want to talk about. It's called A Discourse About Pirates. And it begins, quote, About 20 years ago... King Charles II was pleased to send me to New England to inquire into their trade and commerce, end quote, which is pretty much what happened. His first job, the reason he was sent there in the first place, was to oversee a land dispute that was happening in the province of Massachusetts. The dispute was between a man who owned the region known as Maine and the man who owned a region that would be known as New Hampshire. Randolph drew the dividing line between Maine and New Hampshire. But that was really just him getting started. See, Randolph had a ton of ideas about New England and how it should be run and how it should be divided. It was really Randolph, more than anyone else, who was the architect of the Dominion of New England. You remember the Dominion of New England, right? When Rhode Island, Massachusetts, all of that territory became combined into one unified entity under, hey, look at that, it's Edmund Andros, a major stockholder in the Royal Africa Company. In 1688, the people of Boston had their own little revolution and overthrew Andros and the Dominion of New England. They reinstated their colonial boundaries, and Edward Randolph was thrown in jail. Now, he would languish in that Boston jail for a couple of years, that was, by the way, the same Boston jail that, shortly after he was released, would house a bunch of alleged witches from Salem. He was released in 1692 on the orders of King William. Now, the king didn't do this out of the kindness of his heart. He didn't much like 
Randolph. But Randolph had quite a bit of economic know-how and a lot of experience in America, and by 1692, England was on the brink of financial collapse. Back in the home country, John Locke oversaw a project where a bunch of the coinage, which had been debased for years with lesser metals like tin, well, he had that currency recalled and then re-minted into a much purer form of silver. And that did a lot of good, but America was still bleeding money. Edward Randolph's big job after being released from prison was enforcing the Navigation Acts. He did so to the best of his ability, but the Navigation Acts by 1693 were pretty out of date. The original was passed in 1660. 1676 saw another, but it had been about 20 years since then, and things had changed quite a bit. So Edward Randolph made a bunch of suggestions that turned into the Navigation Act of 1696. This streamlined colonial trade into a much more profitable mercantilist system and also kneecapped the Virginia tobacco planters. But Randolph's biggest concern, the thing that really kept him up at night, was the use of colonial privateers. In that discourse about pirates, Randolph continues, quote, I observed that they, the colonial governors, fitted out vessels of 60 or 70 tons apiece, very well manned, whom they called privateers, and sent them without commission to the Spanish West Indies, where they committed all acts of violence upon the inhabitants, and brought home great quantities of silver in coins and bullion, church plate, and other riches, insomuch that the Spanish ambassador complained." End quote. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. We should remember here that he's writing this whole thing down while Henry Every and Thomas too are in the Red Sea. He may have heard of the mutiny on board Charles II, but he certainly didn't know what they were about to do. The really big, world-shaking piracy stuff hadn't happened yet, but Randolph, there on the ground in America, he saw it coming. His primary focus, though, wasn't on the pirates themselves. You know, let the Royal Navy deal with that. Instead, Randolph focused on the harbors that they used as safe havens. Pirate Nests and the Rise of the British Empire is a fantastic book, written by historian Mark G. Hanna. In it, Hanna writes about the discourse. He says, quote, Here was his first real opportunity to communicate the breadth of the support of piracy in the American colonies, making public in London what had hitherto been rumor and insinuation. Imagining pirates as hostis humani generis distorted colonial perceptions of these men, harmless at worst, heroes at best, and almost always as privateers. The key to stemming international piracy, he continues, was not to attack the sea rovers themselves, but to focus on the maritime communities that were essential to their survival. In a house infested with wasps, one might swat blindly at individual insects, better instead to destroy their nest. End quote. I think what Hannah is pointing to there when he mentions hostis humani generis, enemies of all nations, I think he's talking about the kind of almost instinctual rebellious nature of the American colonists. It sounds to me like what he's saying is that the pirates, in the eyes of the Americans, represented a rebellion against a kind of stifling British control, almost a suffocating British control. And you know, there's something to that, but as we've seen recently, the pirates represented just as big a threat to American commerce as that of anywhere else in the world, often a much larger threat. Now, we know the story from here on out. Henry Every, the Mughal's ship, the global manhunt, the trial of his men. There are a few more things I want to point out about the discourse, though. First, Randolph points out a number of notable pirate havens in his discourse. He's suggesting in this document here that the king appoint something of a piracy czar, an agent who would be in charge of combating the pirate scourge from America. And in a lot of ways, this document really does feel like his resume. But he begins this list, quote, The chief places where pirates resort and are harbored are as follows. Bahama. About eight years ago, John Hoadley, master of a vessel of 32 guns, came to the island of Providence from the coast of Brazil, having a great quantity of sugar aboard, and, after some time, burnt her in the harbor. The year before, Thomas Woolley and Christopher Goss of New England brought a Dutch East India ship of 40 guns from the East Indies. She had abundance of all sorts of coin aboard, they shared the money and burnt the ship at Andrew Island, having a great quantity of pepper aboard. End quote. So it's worth noting that this man in the Americas who wants to be the czar of piracy, right, the first place he notes is New Providence Island. And then he mentions two pirates, or rather two pirate ships, both of whom fenced their cargo at New Providence. Now, I don't know of any pirate named John Hoadley, 
However, I do know of a pirate named John Halsey. In about five years' time, when the war breaks out, he's going to get a letter of mark to serve during the War of Spanish Succession. From there, he's going to push the boundaries of his privateering commission into almost open piracy. Some would argue you could erase the almost from that sentence. Here in 1696, Halsey would have been about 34, definitely old enough to be captain of a ship. And it's possible that he's talking about Halsey here, trading sugar from Brazil, which he had not acquired legally. It's an important fact to keep in mind as we move forward. We'll be talking a lot more about Halsey in the near future. As for the other two pirates, though, Thomas Woolley and Christopher Goss, we know exactly who those two were. They were among the earliest pirates of the round, in fact. Way back in 1683, so this would have been after the first Pacific adventure, but just as the second was about to break out, a Captain Thomas Woolery received a letter of mark from Governor Richard Lilburn of the Bahamas. Now, Captain Woolery had a quartermaster named Christopher Goff. So instead of Woolley and Goss, we have Woolery and Goff. The two men had another shipmate on board named Thomas Henley, and together with a crew they set sail for the Red Sea. There they did indeed capture a Dutch ship which Captain Woolery made his flagship. Thomas Henley was elected captain of the old ship, the much smaller pirate vessel. And then the two ships, working in concert, went on to capture a Mughal ship carrying, you know, Mughal plunder, silks, dyes, and a lot of pepper. Not to mention, of course, the abundance of coin, as Randolph points out. Thomas Henley, in their original ship, elected to stay in the region at Madagascar. He anchored at St. Augustine Bay, which was not yet a pirate haven, but while there he almost certainly would have met up with the men of Signet, and together they would have been among the first English pirates to establish the outpost there, what would go on to be called by later authors Libertalia. In the meantime, Woolery and Goff returned home. While they had been gone, though, Governor Lilburn of the Bahamas had been replaced. See, there was this tug-of-war over the Bahamas between the province of Carolina and Jamaica. Lilburn had been the choice of the Carolina Lords Proprietor. Lords Proprietor who were, thanks to this conspiracy to circumvent the monopoly of the RAC we've been talking about, they were less than stringent in their anti-piracy policies. Jamaica, though, with their rich history of pirate problems, were much more active in their anti-piracy activities. The new governor of the Bahamas, a man named Thomas Bridges, was the direct appointment of the Jamaican governor, and he was very anti-pirate. So when these legally licensed privateers arrived in a captured Dutch ship, Thomas Bridges was suspicious. According to Governor Bridges' own account, quote, Woolery told me that he was come to wood and water, that he had Colonel Lilburn's commission and had done nothing contrary to it. I refused him leave to come in, and he sailed away next day. I am told that they burnt the ship at Andrews Island and dispersed, leaving only six or seven men in the Bahamas. End quote. And that's the official report that went on record, but that's not what Edward Randolph tells us. 
Randolph says that the pirate put in at New Providence Island, that he sold his cargo, and then burned their ship as he said. Then he says that the pirates disappeared into the populace of Nassau. Instead of six or seven men hiding out, they were now integrated into the Bahamas completely. If that were true, and I'm tempted to believe that it is, Governor Bridges would almost certainly have accepted a massive bribe from the pirates. Not just because he bought their cargo, that could be profitable in its own accord, but that letter was written to the Lords of Trade, and lying to the Lords of Trade was a dangerous business. The Lords of Trade. Hmm. You know, it's funny you should mention them, me. See, this has been a wide-ranging episode. We've got all of those little factoids I've been trying to work in. If there were some kind of connective tissue here, it would be 1696, and how the piracies of Henry Every and his ilk would define the landscape of places like Nassau and America. We talked about the Navigation Act of 1696, and that's a big one. But then we've got the Lords of Trade, because in that same year, the Lords of Trade were disbanded. This likely had something to do with the many observances made by Edward Randolph. See, the Lords of Trade and Plantations were immediately replaced by the Commissioners of Trade and Plantations. So, what's the difference? Well, mainly it's who was actually serving on the body. The Lords of Trade were royally appointed, and one and all, they were Lords. They were men with titles who had their own aristocratic politics to play out. You know, this duke or earl might use trade practices in Virginia to try and get at this other duke or earl, which could be good for them personally, but bad for the empire as a whole. On the other hand, the commissioners of trade were appointed by the parliament. Now, it would oversimplify things to say that the parliament chose men on merit alone and that they were unambiguously better at their jobs in every way conceivable. But the Parliament did tend to choose men based more on merit than on title. You know, you don't just choose the Duke of whatever. You choose a person who has training in economics. You choose people who have experience in the colonies. You don't just choose rich landowners. You choose the right people for the job. Beyond that, the Lords of Trade were really only subject to oversight from the king, who wasn't going to do much oversight at all because he wanted their support. The Commissioners of Trade were subject to oversight from the Parliament, and the Parliament could appoint, you know, a special commission to check out the Commissioners. They had plenty of people to do that work. So this is a major change. Now, they did not do this because of Henry Avery. That news had yet to break, but it did take into account, in a major way, the discourse about pirates. Soon thereafter, however, the news about Henry Avery did break, and that really dominated the news cycle for a few months, which brought about, maybe, the biggest change yet. England decided it was time to reevaluate how they would deal with the slave trade. First, they had a few criminals to deal with here. We've talked before about the end of Adam Baldridge's career. He returned to New York, 
found that Lord Bellamont was in place, offered Lord Bellamont a proposal where he would establish a proper colony on St. Mary's, was refused, and retired shortly thereafter. I don't think we've really talked about what happened to Frederick Phillips, though. Frederick Phillips was never arrested, he was far too rich for that, but he was banned from political life in America. He had been on the governor's council for a couple of decades now, but that was over after he was found to have been involved in this conspiracy, and he was investigated, but there was little they could actually pin on him. At least, there was little they could pin on him without angering Lord's proprietor from here to the Bahamas. And finally, we have Benjamin Fletcher. Fletcher returned to England and was arrested on the suggestion of both Edward Randolph and Lord Bellamont. But in the end, there was insufficient evidence to prosecute. More to the point, they didn't really want to prosecute him, and after they dealt with some of those pirates from Henry Avery's crew, there was less need politically to do so. So he was set free. Fletcher retired, and in 1703, he died. Once all of these issues had been handled, once a bunch of pirates had been hanged, once the government of England had reasserted its authority, it was now time to address the underlying causes of the pirate round slavery, or more specifically, the slave trade. Now, by 1696, there were a lot of Africans enslaved in the American colonies. There were not nearly as many as were enslaved in the West Indies, and nowhere close to as many as there would be in, say, 50 years, but there were still, you know, a lot. Everyone realized, though, that the trends were increasing. Plantations were expanding, the need for things like cotton and tobacco and hemp were only growing. It was clear that they were going to need more labor, which meant more enslaved people. And that also made it clear that the Royal Africa Company was not going to be able to handle the demand or the supply. It was time to get the slave trade on the free market. After all of the hubbub with Henry Avery died down, Parliament passed the Trade with Africa Act of 1697. That act ended the monopoly of the RAC. The RAC, of course, held the rights to all of their established holdings in Africa. All of those castles we talked about were their property, and that allowed the company to continue limping on for about another 80 years, but ultimately they were doomed. Their monopoly on the slave trade itself, though, was broken. Anyone was allowed to purchase enslaved people from Africa and sell them wherever they chose, as long as, you know, it was English. The big thing here is that the English government was going to tax any sales of enslaved people. Ten percent of their selling price went directly to the English government, which made them a ton of money and helped fix some of those financial woes they'd been suffering for the past couple of years. Ultimately, it was this that cut the legs out from the pirates of the round. There were still ships in the region they could capture and make a good amount of money on, but without the slave trade, without interloping being such a profitable reason to be there, there wasn't much of a support network for the pirates. And when it comes right down to it, 
Without that network, it turns out that Madagascar is pretty far away from anywhere they needed to be. The vast majority of pirate activity in the world was about to shift back to the West Indies. But first, there's one last group of pirates of the round who had yet to get the memo. They're going to be the last gasp of roundsmen, from, from this generation anyway. Over time, though, they're going to become the first of a new generation of Pirates of the Caribbean. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible, so thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight